chapter 11 in the book of Acts is probably the main transitional chapter in the book of Acts from the ministry of Peter, though we we're going to see him in chapter 12, then he's gone. Uh, from the ministry of Peter, the ministry amongst the Jews in Jerusalem, um, the Jews in Jerusalem had struggled uh, when they heard that the gospel had gone to the Samaritans and they had to get involved in that. They sent Peter and John to make sure it was legit. Um, now we're going to see the gospel going to the Gentiles in a larger degree. And again, they're going to send Barnabas to see if all of this is real. But he begins with Peter going to the house of Cornelius. And uh, if you'll remember, Peter staying with Simon the Tanner and Joppa by the seashore. An angel comes into the house of Cornelius in Caesarea, who's a Roman, and says, send for this man Simon, surnamed Peter. He's staying with Simon the Tanner in his home near Joppa by the seaside and bring him. He will speak words of life. Peter comes. He brings six other brethren from Joppa with him. He's entering the house of a Gentile, which he's never done. God has let that sheet down from heaven three times and said to him, look, Peter, what, what I've don't call common what I've cleaned, what I've called kosher. You know, and he knew he was talking about the house of Cornelius, something for him to learn. He comes in the house of Cornelius, he said, look, it's not legal for me, a Jew, to be in the house of a Gentile. Why did you send for me? Angel did this, came to me. He said, and then Peter begins to talk to them and to share his sermon there. And he, he probably had a five-point sermon. He only gets point one in, and the Holy Spirit interrupts him and falls on the crowd. They're filled with the Spirit. They begin to speak in tongues. Again, Peter is interesting, the only guy in the Bible that was interrupted by the Father, interrupted by the Son, and interrupted by the Holy Spirit. I guess that's how you made progress with this guy. And it says in the end of chapter 10, then they prayed him, they begged Peter to tarry certain days in Caesarea. And it seems like he did that. Um, no doubt Philip became part of this, who was there in Caesarea after the miracle with the Ethiopian eunuch and so forth. We're not sure how long he stayed, but word reaches Jerusalem before Peter does that Peter's entering into the house of the Gentile, and the Gentiles have received Christ. So however long that takes to get to Jerusalem, Peter at least tarried that long. No email, no texting, no telephone. By word of mouth, somehow what's happening in the house of Cornelius now in Caesarea spreads to Jerusalem, and the leadership in Jerusalem hears this, and they're not sure if they have peace with this at all. So as we move into the chapter, we're going to listen to Peter defend his behavior and tell them why. We're going to see them accept that. And for you and I, 
we have little idea how momentous that is to set aside several thousand years of Judaism and say, okay, this thing's going to the Gentiles as well. And then the second half of the chapter takes us to Antioch. And Antioch is not just important because it's it's the Gentiles coming to Christ, though it is for that reason, but Antioch's important because Antioch becomes the center of ministry. It had been Jerusalem. It will become Antioch, and the gospel spreads basically to the known world from there. So uh, interesting, interesting chapter. It says, The apostles and brethren that were in Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. And when Peter was come to Jerusalem, so they heard before he got there, they that were of the circumcision, they contended with him. So there's a contention about this. Peter, you went in the house of a, of a Gentile, you know, there, and, and largely in some ways the Jews in Jerusalem probably still keeping dietary law, probably still keeping some of the feasts, probably still practicing circumcision, and they're fine with Jesus as long as he doesn't interfere with that. And they're having to learn also what it means now that this gospel has gone to the Gentile world. So those of the circumcision begin to contend with Peter. Wonderful. It wasn't on social media. It wasn't on Facebook. It wasn't on Twitter. This was in person, which is the right way to settle these things, by the way. Uh, if you've got a controversy with someone, do me a favor talk to them, look into their face, don't do it in public, on email. We see so much trash in the church and amongst Christians that way. God's given us an innate ability to look into the face of another human being. And through the tone of their voice and the look in their eye, it so often softens what is being said. Whereas if you just read it, you know, you're ready to go to war. So you go, you know, again, Interesting, A.E. Wildersmith, when he was here, one of the 12 brightest guys in the world. I wish I'd have realized that when I was hanging out with him. I cry when I look at it now. He's with the Lord. Well, he was talking to me. He said, you know, the human eye is a transmitter, not just a receiver. He said, we learn more and more that it communicates. It doesn't just take in. And, of course, if you're married, you know that. Your wife goes, you know, you, you know, the, the, there are there's a secret language that goes on with the eyes sometimes. Sometimes tearful, sometimes they smile. Uh, again, and uh, it's good to look into somebody's face because they're transmitting. This, you know, this is a face and this is a book. Don't get confused. You know, you need a real human being. Uh, sometimes those are the innate abilities we have. I mean, when I when I you know, hear that young people today are saying, I don't know how to date. I'm thinking, you got to be kidding me. When I was an 18, I was an expert at this. What do you mean you don't know how to date? Because they're, they're interfacing, you know, on the mobile device all the time. They did, you know, what do I do with a real human being? I'm not sure, you know, I just, that's crazy. And you think how important it was, you know, it says Christ came in the fullness of time. That was before there was all of this electronic junk because these things had to be settled face to face, tone to tone voice to voice and Peter comes back to Jerusalem 
and those of the circumcision start to contend with him. There's an argument. There's a contention now. As Peter returns, you know, welcome home. Saying, this is what the circumcision said, thou wentest into men uncircumcised. And did you ate with them? Okay, you, you went in, you preached to them, fine. But you ate with them. You broke bread with them. You become one with them when you do that. And then Peter then rehearses the whole matter. Now, he does this very effectively. In verse 5, he says, I received a vision from heaven. He brings heaven in all the way across. Verse 7, he says, I heard a voice. In verse 8, I said, not so, Lord, so he knew who the voice was. He said, then the voice answered me again from heaven. Verse 12, he says, the spirit bade me. Verse 13, he talks about an angel is involved. Verse 15, he says, the Holy Ghost fell on them. And then he says in verse 16, the word of the Lord was effective. All the way through, when he talks to the circumcision, he brings heaven in. You know, all the way through, he says, this was the Lord. This was the Holy Spirit. This is not me. This is, guys, cut me some slack. You know me. I, I never, when that thing came down from heaven, I said, I've never eaten anything unclean in my whole life. You know I'm a good Jewish boy. Cut me a break. This is what happened. And it had to be Peter. It wouldn't have had the same clout if it had been someone else. But Peter... You know, it was one of the leaders in the church, and they they would recognize him if he made this situation clear so they could understand it. So it says, Peter rehearsed the matter from the beginning and expounded it by order unto them, saying, I was in the city of Joppa. I was praying doesn't bother to say I was hungry and started the daydream. I was praying. And I was in a trance, a state of ecstasy, it says. And I saw a vision. And a certain vessel descended as it had been a great sheet let down, notice, from heaven. Heaven's involved in this. By the four corners. And it came even to me. There was divine guidance here. Upon the which, when I had fastened my eyes and considered and saw four-footed beasts of the earth and wild beasts and creeping things, you didn't eat those, and fowls of the air, you know, he sees this menagerie of animals, pigs, you know, creeping things. And I heard a voice saying unto me, Arise, Peter, Kill and eat, slay and eat. But I said, not so, Lord. Isn't that interesting? He knew it was the Lord's voice. Now, I wonder, you know, I wonder when the Lord spoke to him from heaven, what voice that was in, you know? I mean, Peter had spent three years with him. Peter had listened to him. Then he spent 40 days with him in his resurrection was it that familiar voice that Peter knew so well that said to him, Peter, kill and eat? That he says right back, not so, Lord. Does he realize it's Jesus right here? I don't know. Interesting what voice the Lord presented himself to Peter with. 
But I said, not so, Lord. Again, that don't go together. For nothing common or unclean hath at any time entered into my mouth. Good Jewish boy. But the voice answered me again from heaven, What God hath cleansed, that call not thou common or unclean. And this was done three times. Now the the Jews are all listening to him in Jerusalem. This was done three times, and then all were drawn up again into heaven. And behold, immediately there were three men already come unto the house where I was sent, that they were sent from Caesarea unto me. The stage is being set for the second half of the book in a remarkable way. And the Spirit bade me, the Holy Spirit, he bade me go with them, nothing doubting. You're asking me, what was I doing in the house of a Gentile eating there? The Holy Spirit told me to go after this vision from heaven. He bade me go with them, nothing doubting. Moreover, now look, this is important. These six brethren accompanied me. So this is the the six believers that says that he left Joppa with, that he took to Caesarea with him to be eyewitnesses of this whole thing. They all go back to Jerusalem with him. It seems they had been in Joppa before that, so that when he gives his testimony, he has six eyewitnesses. The law called for two or three. He has six So he says, moreover, these six brethren accompanied me, and we entered into the man's house. And he showed us how he had seen an angel, notice, in his house, which stood and said unto him, send men to Joppa and call for Simon, whose surname is Peter. So Peter says, look, Before I got there, an angel went into his house. I figured if an angel goes into the house of a Gentile, you know, the angel sent from heaven, then certainly I could go. It softened this whole thing. This angel, he says, was in his house. He says, who shall tell thee, send for this man Peter, who shall tell thee, it's remata here, words, whereby thou and all thy house shall be saved. Uh, faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the remata, the word of God, the, you know, the specific word. The husbands are supposed to wash their wives in the water of the rhema, the, the verse that applies to the circumstance that's being faced. And here, certainly, the word that he shared was the word that applied to the circumstance he was facing because they're asking about Christ and the gospel. And he's very specific then about what he says to them. The angel said, he will tell you the words, the ones that are pertinent, whereby thou and all thy house shall be saved. And as I began to speak, guys, I was just warming up. The Holy Ghost fell on them as on us at the beginning. Now, this is called the Gentile Pentecost because there's a manifestation of the gifts. They speak in tongues, 
Peter can say, the, the same thing that happened to us on Pentecost happened to them. Well, was I supposed to get in the way of that? I didn't do it. The Holy Ghost did it. He said, the Holy Ghost, as I began to speak, fell on them as on us at the beginning. Then remembered I the word of the Lord, how that he said, John indeed baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost. By the way, whenever you're in a tough circumstance and somebody's grilling you, or giving you a hard time, it's always a good thing to remember the word of the Lord. That's not always what I want to remember in that circumstance. I want to remember what a jerk this person is, or I want to remember the last time I got into this with you, nothing ever came of it. I got to remember, you know, no, no. He said, in this circumstance, he said, then I remembered the word of the Lord. Tough circumstance. God's word stands the test every time. I remember the word of the Lord. And, and he said, you know, that there's one coming, John the Baptist said, that will baptize with the Holy Ghost. Again, important as we go in here. There is a baptism that takes place the moment you're saved. At that baptism, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians, we are all baptized by one spirit into one body. The spirit is the agent that baptizes the second that you're saved. And it, we're baptized into the mystical body of Christ. Nobody's asking that. You're saying, I'm a jerk, I'm a sinner, I need to get saved. You get saved. You realize later you've been placed into the mystical body of Christ. Nobody's saying, God saved me and put me in the mystical body of Christ. That doesn't happen. But it happens because the Spirit baptizes into one body. But then there's another baptism where Christ is the baptizer, where you're being baptized with the Spirit. It's not the Spirit baptizing into the mystical body of Christ. It's Christ himself baptizing with the Spirit. And he's going to say here the same thing that happened to us, happened to them. And I remember the word of the Lord that he told us that we would be baptized with the Holy Ghost. He says, For as much then as God gave them the like gift, and that's what it is, as he did unto us who believed on, him, on the Lord Jesus Christ, what was I? Literally, it's who was I that I could withstand God? Peter had said in chapter 2, filled with the Holy Ghost when he preached on Pentecost. He said there, for the promise, he says, he says, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. For the promise is not unto you and your the promise is unto you and unto your children and unto all that are afar off. He had preached that sermon. So he says, he says, For as much then as God gave them the like gift as he did unto us, who believed is having believed. They were already in the position, the apostles, of believing 
when this particular gift was given to them. You remember in John chapter 20, it says Jesus breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Ghost. In the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it's the same word that says he breathed into Adam's nostrils the breath of life. He had been waiting for thousands of years to breathe life into mankind again. And now that these men have believed in him, he's risen, it says he breathes into them the breath of, of the Holy Spirit. They receive the Spirit. That's them being born again. In the book of Acts, as believers, they're waiting for the Holy Spirit to come upon them, to be baptized with the Holy Spirit, and he says that here. He, he says, For as much then as God gave them the like gift, as he did unto us, having believed, we were believers, on the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could withstand it? I saw God do the same thing to them as he did to us. When they heard these things, you have to underline this, they held their peace circumcision. These people were giving them a hard time. They held their peace and glorified God, saying, Then hath God also to the Gentiles granted repentance unto life. Two thousand years at least of Jewish history being set aside. We, we can't imagine what that means. I mean, look. Paul, in his missionary journeys, who was a Pharisee of the Pharisees of the tribe of Benjamin, circumcised, and he goes through his credentials, he's going to be hassled by Judaizers everywhere he goes. Jews that are saying he's tearing down the, the law, he's doing this. You have to understand what it means for the leaders of the church in Jerusalem to say, to hold their peace. They're listening God gave the same gift to the Gentiles he gave to us. I heard them speak in tongues like we did on the day of Pentecost. He saved them, then he filled them. And who was I that, that I could get in way? There were was voices from heaven, angels are involved, God spoke to me. All of these things, he says, and who was I then that I could stop that process? And when they heard these things from Peter, just, it's incredible. I have a Underlined, they held their peace. It's 2,000 years of peace. Dietary laws, feasts, circumcision. They held their peace and glorified God, saying, Then, this is true, hath God also to the Gentiles granted repentance unto life. Hard for you and I to understand the weight of that. Whatever prejudices we know about, whatever bigotry we know about, you have thousands of years of it here being set aside. And they, look, their prejudices were based on Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the patriarchs. Their, their prejudices were, were based on Moses, the miracles coming out of Egypt, the Passover, you know, 
their their prejudice is based upon you know the parting of the Red Sea and the parting of the Jordan River and the walls of Jericho falling down and the sun and the moon standing still in the valley of Agilon. You know their prejudices are based on Samson killing a thousand Philistines with the jawbone of an ass. Their prejudices are, are they're based on a shepherd boy killing the greatest warrior the Philistines ever produced with a sling. Their prejudices are based on you know. David becoming king, the kingdom being established, Solomon. You know, their prejudices are based on heaven's involvement with their ancestors for several thousand years. It's not unfounded. And for them at this point to, to hold their peace and say, are you kidding? This is happening to the Gentiles too. God is granting them repentance unto life sets the stage now for the second half of the book. Verse 19 then says this, Now, now, after everything that we read, now, they which were scattered abroad upon the persecution that arose about Stephen traveled as far as Phoenice, Cyprus, an island off in the Mediterranean off the coast of Syria, and Antioch, preaching the word um, to none but unto the Jews only. Now, it says it's born out of, and I'll just go back and read it. This is the chapter 8 after Stephen is stoned. It says, Saul was consenting unto his death. And at that time there was a great persecution against the church, which was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered abroad through the regions of Judea and Samaria, except for the apostles. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. And as for Saul, he made havoc of the church entering into every house and hailing men and women, committed them to prison. Therefore they that were scattered abroad went everywhere preaching the word. So it picks up there and it says, Now they which were scattered abroad upon the persecution that arose because of Stephen, they traveled, bless you, as far as Phoenice and Cyprus and Antioch, Preaching now, it's not our normal word for to evangelize. There, they traveled, speaking, sharing the word, and but they did that to no one but the Jews. It says it was still a fairly closed culture, and it says, and some of them were men of Cyprus, which he mentioned. And Cyrene, I think the the Greek language actually says Cyprians and Cyrenians here. That's North Africa, Simon the Cyrene. Some of them, the men, were of Cyprus, some of Cyrene, which when they were come to Antioch, spake unto the Grecians, Preaching, now our word, they spake, same word as speaking, as preaching in verse 19, but then it says, they spake unto the Grecians, 
preaching evangelizo now. They're preaching the gospel of the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned unto the Lord. So here's this remarkable circumstance. They go unto Antioch. They're scattered there by persecution, which is up in Syria. Antioch was the third largest city in the Roman Empire. Of course, Rome was first, then Alexandria in Egypt, and then Antioch, population over 500,000 most of the time. Um, Huge city for the day. It's filled with a pantheon of gods there. Uh, Apollo, Daphne, Artemis, Zeus, uh, Tyche, Baal is actually worshipped there. But the primary part of the worship there was this tale about this woman, Daphne, who drew the affection of Apollo, one of the Greek gods. And Apollo started to pursue her and had intimacy with her, and she became divine through that. So there's this, but but then after she conceives, she becomes a myrtle tree. I'm not making this up, I'm telling you. You can check me out. I would make up a story like, I make up a much better story than this. So by this time, there, there were over a thousand temple prostitutes, prostitutes, and the men of Antioch would go into these myrtle fields south of the city when it got dark, and they would chase the temple prostitutes. And when they caught them, they considered that divine, a form of worship. They would have sexual intercourse with them, and, and this was normal. The wives accepted it. The children grew up learning about it. Imagine children growing up learning about sexual things. Unthinkable. This was the city. It was profligate. It was known for drunkenness. It was known for immorality. It was a place you would think they would call fire down on. Instead, the Lord puts the church right in the middle of this city of Antioch. Because he loved them. You know, he's going to tell Paul, go back into Corinth. I have much people in the city with all of the problems Corinth had. Here now, it's Antioch. A huge church begins to grow there. Many people get saved. We know that ultimately, it's a number of years after this. This is somewhere 40 A.D. in that area. Ignatius becomes, the church fathers tell us, the bishop there at Antioch. And he's so persuasive, so many people are listening, that Trajan, the Caesar at that point, actually comes to Antioch and watches him. And he was undermining Caesar worship, Antioch, the third largest city in their empire. So Trajan takes Ignatius, he takes him back to Rome and throws him in the arena and feeds him to the beasts. And church tradition says Ignatius is the first martyr of the church fed to the beasts in Rome. Ultimately, within 200 years of this, a young boy named John becomes a deacon there. 
at Antioch and goes through his robes and finally ends up being the pastor, John Chrysostom, the golden voice or the golden throat, the remarkable taught through books of the Bible, expositionally, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. What a novel idea. And the great crowds came, and several times he went to Constantinople, Byzantium. He went there and preached, and they were so overwhelmed with him, they finally take him, and they make him the bishop of the church there in Constantinople, and tens of thousands would gather on a Sunday to listen to him. No PA system, no smoke machines, no lasers, no rock band. Chrysostom, the golden mouth. Thousands upon thousands would gather. So there's so much that comes out of Antioch. But it's a city that none of us would, you know, if somebody said, hey, how about going to Antioch? You'd say, are you crazy? That place is so dark and so filthy. But it's just what the Lord wanted, you know. Just he loved those people. They were deceived. They were in darkness. The enemy thought that he was the one, you know, who who reigned over them. And instead, it it says they went as far as Antioch, and they were sharing the word there with Jews only. Some of them were from Cyprus, some from North Africa, And when they were come to Antioch, they spake unto the Grecians as well, preaching. Now, if it's over the persecution of Stephen, who was a Hellenist, who was in the synagogues there of those of Cyprus and Cyrene, it tells us, in Jerusalem, he is one of those synagogues. These are those who were completely familiar with the idea, so they're Hellenists which when they were come to Antioch, they spake to the Grecians as well, the idea is there, preaching the gospel, evangelizing them to the Lord Jesus Christ. And it says, and the hand of the Lord was with them. And a great number believed and turned unto the Lord from the most evil, indulgent practices that you can imagine. Because people get burned out on them. You know, people get burned out on it. You start thinking one thing, you head into it. My generation was drugs, alcohol. And then you just get more and more burnt out on it. Your friends turn on you. If you find out they had drugs and didn't share it with you, you're angry with them. They find out you had it and share it with them. They're angry with you. It's just a whole insane culture. And the crazy thing is then you get saved and all the people who wouldn't share their drugs want to give it to you then. You know, it's just a whole different kind of warfare. But, but you know, the, you indulge and you indulge and you get more anesthetized. It says we get desensitized. We look out that our hearts aren't, you know, desensitized through the deceitfulness. They're not hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. And people are left in such darkness. They can fool the people around them, but you go home at night and you lay your head on your own pillow and there ain't anybody to fool there. And you know in your own heart how empty you are. That's where suicide is contemplated. That's what people think about. What's the use? That's what people think about how lonely they are. And it says when the gospel came 
to people that were that indulgent, wrapped up in, no doubt, alcohol, drugs, immorality. It says they turned to the Lord. They believed. They heard the message of Christ and his love and his resurrection. They turned to the Lord. Then, we have a number of thens in this chapter, then things, tidings of these things, came to the ears of the church at Jerusalem. Big ears, they seem to hear everything. They came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent forth Barnabas that he should go as far as Antioch. Now, he's from Cyprus. He's from the area, we're told. Barnabas, interesting character study. If you get a chance to dig into his life on your own, he's, he has a gift of exhortation, but he just seems to be the guy that knows how to do the right thing at the right time. He just got that. We see him in you know, the chapter 5, giving land to the church. He was, he was a Levite. He was of a certain family. Barnabas is a given name. We watch him. We watch him. He's the one who takes Saul to Jerusalem and can, you know, he, he convinces the apostles that the guy's really saved. He's just a guy that knows how to bring people along. When Paul and Barnabas split up, he's the perfect guy to take John Mark. The perfect guy. And the missionary efforts are doubled there. We'll get to that. It's a different study. But here they send Barnabas. The church in Jerusalem trusts him and he, that he should go as far as Antioch who when he came and had seen, note of this, he seems, sees the grace of God, he was glad. What he saw there in all of these Gentiles getting saved is he saw the grace of God. Sadly, some aren't happy when they see that. I don't know if you had friends or relatives like that. You were no good, you were a druggie, you were whatever you were, and you got saved, and they weren't happy because they didn't believe you. He said, what's next? Jesus now, flying saucers, what's next? You know, you go from one thing to the next. It says when Barnabas saw it, he's going to tell us he's a man filled with the Holy Spirit and faith, good man. He saw it, he perceived it, he understood it. It says, who when he came and had seen the grace of God manifest in these conversions, he was glad. And look what it says then. He exhorted them, and that was his gift. He exhorted them all that with purpose of heart they would cleave unto the Lord. So he exhorts them, which means to encourage forward, to encourage somebody to do something. And he's an encourager. He encourages them that with purpose of heart it's interesting that our, our word purpose here is an unusual word and it's translated showbread four times in the New Testament. The idea is because the showbread is set forth. It's placed publicly. And so he says here, you should have purpose. It should be set forth. It should be evident. He exhorts them. He encourages them with purpose in their heart, not in their mind, in their heart. What they should do is cleave. It's translated, different words, it's translated to continue, to tarry, to abide. 
that they should cleave unto the Lord, not to Calvary Chapel, not to denomination. They should tarry with, abide with, cleave. He's an encourager with a supernatural gift. He encourages them that with purpose they should set forth their hearts and the purpose of that should be to cleave, to hang on to, to abide with the Lord Jesus. Isn't it interesting? A profligate, you know, place, indulgent, and the advice then and the advice now hasn't changed. In the world there we're in, that we're in today that would drag us down and try to make us compromise and pull us away from a relationship we need to be encouraged that with purpose of heart, you and I today would cleave, hold on to, abide with the Lord Jesus, like the woman holding on to the hem of his garment, you know, that we should do that in, the, in, the, in this most immoral city, Antioch, in Philadelphia, certainly. And the reason he did that, look, here's Luke writes this, but this is the Holy Spirit's Opinion, for he was a good man. Don't find many of those. That's God's view. He was full of the Holy Ghost, not half full. He was full of the Holy Ghost and of faith. And much people were added to the Lord. So he comes there. He's a good man. He's full of the Holy Ghost. He has perception. Uh, he's sensitive to the Lord. He's filled with faith. And he's standing watching this church begin to grow in Antioch. He, he knows it needs to be encouraged to hold on to the Lord because there's things pulling it in other directions. And he's watching this whole thing, and, and he's amazed with it as he, as he watches what's happening here in this church at Antioch. And he's full of the Holy Ghost. Remarkable. Then, here's another then, then departed Barnabas to Tarsus to seek Saul. Now, interesting picture. The only other time that we have this word seek, he went to seek Saul, and Luke's writing here, the Holy Spirit's using Luke, is in Luke chapter 2, where Mary and Joseph are leaving Jerusalem and on their way back to Nazareth, Mary says to Joseph, where's Yeshua? He said, what do you mean, where's Yeshua? You were watching him, not me. You know, I'm with the men. You're watching the 12-year-olds, not me. And she, he said, what do you mean? He's your son. I thought you were watching him. And they realize they've lost the Messiah. So they go back to Jerusalem and it says they sought. That's our word here. And they sought him. Only other time it's used, it's used here, where Barnabas goes to Tarsus. We haven't heard from Saul or about Saul since chapter 9, verse, uh, let's see, verse 30, where it says, um, it says, when the brethren knew that there was violence playing against Saul, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him forth to Tarsus. We're about eight to ten years later now. So there's huge questions. What was Saul doing the whole time? You know, 
the, the Lord said to, to Ananias, tell him, I'm going to send him to the Gentiles. He's going to speak to kings and rulers, you know. And here he is for eight to ten years in obscurity in, in Tarsus. Had he planted churches there? I'm sure he had shared. It doesn't seem like the kind of guy you can shut up. We're not sure what was accomplished there, but we know this. If it wasn't for Barnabas, he'd have never come to Antioch. If it wasn't for Barnabas, he'd have never stepped into the fullness of the ministry that God called him to. If you are a Barnabas, God bless you, we need you. If you have the gift of exhortation to challenge and to encourage, I can never say how important that gift is in the church. If you have that gift. Now, you know, you don't want somebody who just thinks they have the gift of exhortation exhorting you all the time, you know. But if, but if you do have that, you have the ability to encourage people, to kind of pick them up and dust them off and get them on their way again. How important. If it wasn't for Barnabas, he doesn't think, let me go to Jerusalem and get Peter here. You know, he doesn't think, let me go back to Jerusalem and get those six witnesses because they ain't going to believe what's going on here. He doesn't think any of those things. He thinks, Saul, Saul, let me go to Tarsus, see if I can find this is perfect for him. You know, this church is growing. I, I'm not a pastor. I'm a, I can preach the gospel. Uh, I have the gift of exhortation. We need to get a teacher here. Because they're going to have the same problems we had in Jerusalem. The widows are not going to be happy with the way the money's being distributed. They're going to have sneaky people like Ananias and Sapphira. You know, they're going to have all the same kind of problems as the church grows, and every church does. So when he sees that, he thinks of Saul. He's a Hellenist. He can speak to the Greeks. He understands their culture. He would be the perfect guy. So it says that he departed and he went to Tarsus to seek this intense he's intense in it to seek Saul and when he had found him come on give us some more facts will you when he had found him where did he find him what was he doing did he go around town saying uh, you, you know Saul does anybody can anybody help me here he used to be a Pharisee now he's one of those crazy Christians you know when he found him, he brought him unto Antioch, and it came to pass that a whole year they assembled themselves with the church and taught to instruct here, to teach much people. And then it says this, and the disciples were called Christians first in Antioch. A remarkable picture, because here he comes, and a whole year he teaches them. They had come out of immorality. That I mean, how many people in our church have come out of insane backgrounds? You know, you come out of legalism on one side, and you can't receive God's grace. You come out of indulgence in the world. On another side, it's hard to receive God's grace and believe that he loves you. You know, here are these people, battered, beaten up, immorality, all of this pantheism of, of idolatry and fake gods, and it says that Paul then, Saul, still stays there with Barnabas. And for a year, he instructs them. He teaches them. He's using the Old Testament, obviously. And then it says, and the believers were first called Christians at Antioch. That's by the unbelievers, by the way. 
you know, how many of them called them Christians mocking Christ, Messiah? You know, you have the Hebrew, Greek, and Latin kind of involved here. Christians means belonging to, the, the suffix in Latin there. So these are people belonging to Jesus. Oh, these are the Jesus people. Some probably mocking, some looking at them and say, I, I knew this guy. A year ago, he was completely different. He's one of those Jesus followers now. There's different, and there's a testimony in that. A changed life can't be argued with. That's why he told them to cleave to the Lord. You have to maintain your testimony. Hold on to him in this crazy world. Because as it gets crazier and crazier, your light is going to shine brighter and brighter. In complete blackness and darkness, you can see somebody light a match five miles away. In complete darkness. And the darker this world becomes. And look, again, I look at our nation and I see everything going on. And to me, it's almost as if our nation had said to God, we don't want you in our schools. We don't want prayer. You know, we don't want life. We want abortion. We don't want marriage the way you described it. We don't want peace between races the way you tell us it should be. We don't want anything you've said. And God has almost to me said, all right. And he's taken his hand off of us. See how you like it. And I see the nation plowed up with tornadoes. I see the nation broken down financially. You see the violence in our neighborhoods and between races. You see everything that's going on, and you think, is God then going to shine a light? Are we getting to the point where humans that didn't want anything to do with them before are going to become so desperate that there's going to be a great going forth of the gospel? I hope so. I hope so. Now, if we get raptured, that's fine, too. Because after the church is gone, in Revelation chapter 7, we have the greatest ingathering that, that history's ever seen. But I'd love to see one of those before we're out, wouldn't you? You know, think of parents, friends, siblings, relatives, people we work with, people we go to school with. Think of the people that drive you out of your mind, like Saul of Tarsus. Right? It'd be wonderful to see that. Lord, one more time, you know, you see a great ingathering, an awakening. But the disciples are called by unbelievers. They're first called Christians. I think we have it two other times in the book of Acts. They're first called Christians or in the New Testament, two other times in the New Testament. They're first called Christians at Antioch, and the least place you'd expect it. And in these days, it says, came prophets from Jerusalem to Antioch. Now, it's the first mention of prophets. They no doubt knew about them in Jerusalem because it says they came from Jerusalem to Antioch, but the first time we have them brought before us, and in two verses we're going to have elders brought before us, what we've seen thus far has been apostles and probably deacons, the ones chosen. It doesn't specifically say they're called deacons, but the diakonos to serve there is brought to the fore. And certainly the, 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 the you know, role that deacons play in the New Testament is, is much modeled after what we see there. 
in chapter 6 of the book of Acts. So we've, we've become familiar with the apostles, those serving the deacons. Now all of a sudden, for the first time, we're being introduced to prophets and to elders. The church is growing. It's forming. It's realizing that we can't have this prejudice. The church can't have prejudice today, and I wish it would realize it. We can't have this prejudice. It has to break down. We have these problems. The church is growing. There has to be order. There's the apostles in Jerusalem. There's elders now. There's prophets. There's those who are serving, those that are less fortunate in the body, taking care of issues. The church is forming up, and they're being called now Jew or Gentile. They're being called Christians. What an interesting picture that we have here. So these prophets... They come from Jerusalem. Now, what are New Testament prophets? I know there's too many of them around today. And, they, you know, they, I've been prophesied over by some weird prophets. And I've been able to say, I ain't edified. Paul said the gift of prophecies to edify. Uh, you, must, you're, you know, you must have ate too much pepperoni pizza before you went to bed or something. Uh, the prophets. Well, look, the testimony of Jesus, it says, Revelation 19:10, is the spirit of prophecy. So certainly, Billy Graham, there was a prophet there. There just there is the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. So that spirit of prophecy is still functioning today. But Jesus said of the Old Testament prophets that they prophesied until John. Jesus said John the Baptist was the last of the Old Testament prophets, and he was the greatest born among women. Now we're going to meet Agabus, and we're going to meet him again in chapter 21. The New Testament prophet, and it tells us in Ephesians chapter 4 that the Lord has given grace to the church in apostles, prophets, evangelists, and the, the structure is some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors, and there's not a second some there, pastors, chi, teachers, Granville, Sharp rule in the Greek makes the pastor-teacher one office, the same thing. Because God wouldn't give a man a burden for the flock without the ability to feed them. He wouldn't give the man an ability to feed the flock that didn't care about the flock. So pastor-teacher, one gift. But prophets are mentioned there, too, in the church. So it seems that the gift of prophecy in the church is primarily forth-speaking. Somebody who's prophetic can speak forth with authority. It's funny. When we came through Isaiah and Jeremiah Ezekiel, I was listening to Chuck's old tapes, and he's dead now for, for seven, eight years. And listening to him, it sounded like he was watching the news now. And I thought, there's a prophetic gift here. He sees, you know. So I would say, first of all, a prophetic gift in the church today is somebody who sees clearly and they can speak with authority. Secondly, there can be forthtelling, because Agabus is going to take Paul's sash and say the man who owns this is going to go bound to Jerusalem and it happened. He's going to prophesy here a famine that comes on the land. We have historical record of it. It happened. So this is another gift functioning in the church. Certain prophets came from Jerusalem unto Antioch. The church must have sent them. And there stood up one of them named Agabus and signified by the Spirit that there should be a great dearth 
throughout all the world. Now, that's not planet Earth. That's the Mediterranean world. It's the world they knew, the Roman world. There would be a great famine through all the world, which came to pass in the days of Claudius Caesar. Josephus tells us about it. Other Roman historians tell us somewhere 40 to 47 A.D., this great famine came. Grain normally came from Egypt. There was a drought in Egypt. The Nile fell. The land wasn't irrigated. Grain didn't come from Egypt. It was, you know, it was a, a terrible situation, and it set the stage for the Gentiles to send offerings and food to the Jews in Jerusalem. And it continued the work of breaking down the wall between Jews and Gentiles. This great dearth came. God spoke about it ahead of time, so he knew about it and he allowed it. And it served a purpose. He knew about COVID. He allowed it to come. It serves a purpose. It says, our light affliction which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. It worketh for us, our light affliction. It, it produces something. And this situation will produce something as well. It says, he said there would be a great dearth throughout it's the Mediterranean world, which came to pass in the days of Claudius, Caesar, and then the disciples, every man, the disciples in Antioch, look, according to his ability, determined to send relief to the brethren which dwelt in Judea. Because it seems like that was hit particularly hard. We're not sure if part of that was because it tells us in Acts 2 they sold their land, their belongings, they distributed to every man as they had need that they may have been in some ways in greater financial trouble than when this dearth hits. Um, a woman named Helena, not the mother of Constantine, evidently who's a believer who is extremely wealthy, came to Jerusalem. There's a historical record of her buying grain from Egypt at exorbitant prices, and she brought figs in from Cyprus, loads of them, and she fed the church and the Jews in Jerusalem. There's record of that because she had the means to do it. It says here in Antioch, as they were able, some, somebody threw a quarter in. We, we see it in Sunday school or in our elementary school. A kid puts a quarter in. They're, they're saving for a missionary somewhere. He puts in 25 cents. And to me, that's like the widow's might. You know, somebody else might put 100 bucks in, but where the Lord is watching, doesn't matter how much it, you give it matters how much it costs you. And, uh, you know, it says they gave as they were able. There's no rule here about tithing that wasn't enforced in the New Testament church. Uh, you know, if, 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 if the, the church father said, if every person gives as they are able, the church will always have the flow of resources it needs to serve the king. If everyone gives as they are able. The problem is we, we don't always give as we are able. Nah, eh, let's hold that back this week and do this. And I, I always wanted one of those Wagyu steaks. Uh, I know it's a little more, but we can hold back this, you know. I'm speaking from my own. 
carnivorous carnal self. The disciples, every man according to his ability, 2 Corinthians 8 tells us the same thing, determined, they determined to send relief to their brothers, their Jewish brothers, which dwelt in Judea. You know, the interesting thing here in this picture, too, is usually the mother church supports the missions. Here we have the missions supporting the mother church. Kind of an interesting picture. They wanted to send this relief to Judea, which also they did, and they sent it to the elders in the Jerusalem church by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. So so interesting. They send Barnabas to see if these things are real, if they're really going on. Church in Jerusalem hasn't seen Saul for at least ten years. They have to send that you know they grill Peter. Is this really happening? And now they send Barnabas. Will you go there and see what's happening, please? Are the Gentiles really, you know? And he sees the whole thing and he encourages them and so forth. Then a prophet comes from Jerusalem, Agabus. No doubt he's sent by the church, speaks to them there, tells them what's coming. And it says, as that begins to come, they determine they're going to help their brethren in Jerusalem. And the Jewish church in Jerusalem had no doubt that real work was taking place among the Gentiles when they started to get financial support from them. You know, then they knew this is real, man. Look, this was what happened. This is from our brethren that are Gentiles, sending here, caring for us, making sure we can put something in our mouth at the end of the day that we have something to eat. How wonderful! So, Lord tarries. Uh, next week we come to chapter 12, and it's kind of the last we see of Peter. He's in the prison. The angel has to slap him and try to get him out because he thinks he's dreaming. You know, James is martyred. And then it's an interesting transition. And then we're with Saul of Tarsus, who becomes Paul, through the rest of the history of the book here. So read ahead, chapter 12. Uh, Let's stand. Let's pray together. Lord, there's things here, no doubt, for all of us again. Thousands of years of prejudices being broken down by your love, by the gospel, by the Holy Spirit. Lord, um, being saved out of a completely indulgent environment and having other people recognize that and say we're Christ followers. Let it be so in our lives, Lord. Teach us, Lord, to, to commit ourselves to hold on to, to cleave, Lord Jesus, to you in our personal lives so that each one of us would be rich for the people we live with and the people we serve with, for our friends and our family. Lord, let us be wealthy, Lord, in our own personal relationship with you, Lord. Let us be rich in that. Let others call us Christ followers, Lord. Let us not have to to brag about it ourselves, Lord. And let us give as we are able, Lord. We put these things before you. You've put them in your word, not just so we can study history, but so that we can learn. Give us our portion of these things, Lord. You know us all individually. We trust you to do that, Lord. We pray in your name. Amen.